Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Psalm 30. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies glow over me. Lord my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To you, Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. If you go to Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, there's a phrase in this verse that says this. It says, work out our salvation with awe and wonder. And sometimes it's confused. People say they think they're reading, one works for their salvation. But that's not actually Christianity. I would argue that every other religion in the world does say to some degree, work for your salvation, obey these law codes, follow these rules, and if you do, then you're in. Today I would even argue that if, if you don't consider yourself religious, you still have a moral framework, you still have a moral grid, you have codes that you live by and you judge other people by. And you're in if you do them, and you're not in if you don't do them. Go to any social media platform, it's exactly what's happening. It's a giant religious exercise of who we're going to cancel and who we're not going to cancel. Liberal people are doing this to conservatives. Conservative people are doing to liberals. Uh, These are the people who are in. They follow the right code. They're doing the right paradigm. These people are not in. And we're canceling each other out. I, I would argue only Christianity says there is a right and wrong way to live but you're never going to live the right way. That you're always going to live the the wrong way, which is why salvation is something that has to happen to you. Right? The words, the world says, obey, and then you'll be accepted. Only Christianity comes out and says, no, 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 no. You're already accepted. Now you're actually free to obey. That's a categorical difference between Christianity and every other view in existence out there. And I think it changes everything. So go back to that verse, Philippians 2 verse 12. It says you can only work something out if you already have it. So it's actually the reverse. It's not something you have to do. It's something you've already been given. Now you can work it out. It means to live it out. It means to work it into the fabric of your life and to move it into the deeper recesses of your heart, 
And there is no better time than the present to do that. And the way to do that, I would argue, is actually one of the main ways to do that is through prayer. That's why we've been looking at the Psalms all summer long, uh, where the Psalms are here to equip us and help us and give us the tools and the skills, even in this pandemic, even remotely doing this through this medium, through whether I'm on a television or an iPad or some other screen right now for you, uh, maybe you're listening to this uh, through the, our podcast, these are still ways for us to be equipped to work out our salvation. So today's psalm gives us those tools, and the, and the psalm breaks down really nicely in three ways. Let's see the setup for the crisis, uh, what is the crisis, and then what can be produced from the crisis. So the setup of the crisis, what is the crisis, and then what can be produced from the crisis. So first, the setup of the crisis. At first, uh, this, the, the answer to this question is not very apparent. What's the setup? Most scholars look at this psalm and says this is a psalm of thanksgiving by David, King David, or uh, some other part of his life. And what's clear from these first few verses is David is thankful for something. That is clear. That he feels low in verse 1. And it says, God lifted him up out of the depths. And the word from this image that he uses, the lifted out of, is uh, the image of like a bucket being drawn up out of a well. It's coming out of the depths. And he's so thankful. He's thankful for being delivered. Thank you, Lord, that you've done this for me. That you've drawn me out of the depths. Now, potentially, he's thankful for being delivered from his enemies. In verse 1, right? They're on the outside. Um, and then, and, and also from the dangers from the inside. In verse two, it looks like there was some sort of healed um, sickness that he was healed from. So just in verses one and two, there seems to be dangers on the outside and dangers on the inside. All are gone, and now he's feeling this universal care. In some ways, David details all the ways God can help you here. He's given wealth. He's given health. He's given everything he wants. In verse 7, he says, my royal mountain stands firm, which is an image, of course, of material wealth that he's been given. So it's important to note that David, up until this point, or at least right before this psalm, he was not experiencing a comfortable life of things going well for him. Uh, but now he's been spared and he's been given healing. And so if you have health, if you have wealth, if you have success or status of any way, isn't that what people want? Isn't that what we, why we, one of the reasons why we pray and what we ask for? And so with David, in verse 2, he asks, he calls out, and it's given to him. So he was weeping, and now he's rejoicing. David is weeping and rejoicing early on, and that's notable because David knows elsewhere he's been known as a man of God. But his man of God is not necessarily free of pain. This is an important dichotomy we have to break. Some reason, for some reason in American culture, we believe if you just pray enough and love God enough, then things are going to go well for you. That's not what happened to David. Right? If David was close to God and it didn't, spare him, it didn't spare him from hardships, then we shouldn't expect the same for us. That means if you're a Christian, you should expect both weeping and rejoicing, both joy and sorrow in our lives. Sometimes I think the way Christians talk uh, is if you're a Christian, you know, God will work. We take this phrase, God will work all things for those who love, uh, love him, right? We take that phrase, we go, yes, he's gonna, it's going to be good. And we assume it, we assume it means life's going to be great, but no, you have to listen carefully. God will work all things. That includes the bad things. 
for good. That doesn't mean that while you're going through them, they're actually good. They're not actually good. That means it's going to not necessarily be joy all the time and just a little bit of sorrow. Look at David's life. Look at Jesus' life. It'll be both joy and sorrow, right? And therefore, Christians should expect both. That's the problem, that we expect our lives to only have joy. And when we have joy, uh, we're not ready for the sorrow. But when sorrow hits, we're like, hey, where's the joy? Where did the joy go? This text says you'll have both, and you should expect both. David did. He knew that God would be in the sorrows, and he would be in his joys. And if he can be with you in both places, if God can be with you in both places, that means that he can be even in, in your deepest sorrows right now. That means joy will actually still be there. Sorrow doesn't have the last word on your life. It can't put out, finally, the possibility of joy ever in your life with him with you. When all other lights go out, when all other things uh, are gone, joy, the memory of it, the possibility of it, the acknowledgement of it, means joy is always around the corner for a Christian. So you need to know that that's true, but you need to remember that's true, because all of us are going to go through periods of joy and sorrow, just like David. Now, interestingly, uh, what David is saying here is that even though things are good, when he had joy, it actually sets him up for crisis. So the second, let's, point at this, let's, let's point this out. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. The second thing to see here is what is this crisis? Because David's been delivered. In these first few verses, he's been delivered, but look what happens to him. By verse six, it says, I felt secure, but because of that, I told myself I will never be shaken. That's a great, interesting phrase. What does he mean by that? When life is going good, when I felt secure, when I thought my problems were no more, that's when I told myself I'll never be shaken. I'm invincible. In other words, a good life, an easy life, can and does tend to lead to overconfidence. It always leads to forgetfulness. And I think we see this over and over and over again in the Bible. In the, look in the book of Judges. The people cry out, help, help. Right? We need you, Lord. We need you, God. And God sends a judge and saves the people, and then they're saved, and then life is good, and things go back to normal. And the next time the Midianites are, are at their doorstep, they're like, we got this, no big deal. We're on our own. Why? Because they forgot that it actually wasn't them that defeated the Midianites, that it was God all along. And so the cycle then starts all over again. Or look at the Israelites in the wilderness. Right? Life is hard. Help, help, Lord. They cry out. They call out. God provides. And as soon as that provision comes, they forget again what he did for them. And so they start worshiping a golden calf, or they start grumbling, or they start, the cycle starts over. So look now into your own lives. I've been trying to do this recently in this pandemic. Those of us 
who have had comfortable lives, but the least amount of turmoil, the least amount of pain, that tends to and that can lead to a level of shallowness. It tends to lead to forgetfulness. It leads to overconfidence. Those who have not suffered much, those who have the least amount of pain actually have the least amount of things to say about that pain and suffering as well. Charles Spurgeon, uh, I think a Baptist minister uh, in London, put it this way once. He said, In proportion to your tribulations, that shall also be your consolations. If you have shallow sorrows, you shall receive shallow graces. But if you have deep afflictions, you shall obtain deeper proof of the faithfulness of God. Now, that's a profound statement. Notice Spurgeon's not saying that wisdom comes from understanding why you're suffering. We said last week in our last psalm that sometimes you'll never understand why you're suffering. No, rather what he's saying is you are, when you are in a deep trial, that is how you're going to experience the depth of God's faithfulness. Joni Erickson Tata, uh, paralyzed from the neck down from an accident decades ago, she agrees with Spurgeon. She says this, she says, many decades of living a, in a, with a life of paralysis can't move her body at all. It's taught her that great adversity always brings great grace. Because of our unusual suffering, he gives, he tends to give unusual patience and help and hope too. And she actually, in some of her books, she goes on and says that her pain has kept her from the shallows of a life lived in only ankle deep. Right, That ankle deep life, that shallow life, means that we can feel God's promises, but only in a shallow way. We can feel God's grace, but only in a shallow way. To really get the depths of it, you you need a lot of grace. You need a lot of the promises. You need to hold on to them. And see, I think that's what, what, what David did. He fell into error. Because when life was going good, he's like, I'm good. The truth is that when life is going good, you're actually probably, at that moment, the least prepared to be ready for when things are not going to be going good. Why is that? Because it's, it's in those good times that we tend to forget the hard times. Then we tend to think that we deserve the good times. And then we tend to assume that it's never going to change and life's going to be like this always. And we feel secure. That's the moment right there when we say, I'll never be shaken. Which is probably the moment when you're probably most susceptible to be shaken. Because what's happening there is you're being overconfident. You're not humble. You're not meek. You're not prepared for the downturns and the hurt and the brokenness that if you just look at the history of life is bound to happen. It's lurking behind and near us the whole time. Becky Pippert in her book, uh, Hope Has Its Reasons, she put it better than anyone I know of. She said this. She said, here is where Christians part company decisively with the modern culture. The culture tells us to ignore our self-doubts and to feel only positive thoughts about ourselves. But I'm saying the opposite. Pay attention to those lurking doubts. Listen closely to that that nagging discontent. And why is she saying that? She's saying that because Christians should be the best and not being overconfident because of the cross, because we know our own nature, that we know that Jesus had to die and save us. We should be therefore the first to repent. And when we don't, it's because we're short-sighted. We don't see how high of a view of of ourselves that we actually have. That was the crisis that David had. The crisis was that when bad things were happening in his life, it was the lack of the bad things that made him feel like, 
he was good and self-sufficient on his own. And it was that false sense of autonomy that did him in. And so let me give you just a quick test for you. Some of you, despite COVID right now, here's the test. By and large, COVID has hit everybody in a, in a different way. The, um, this coronavirus has hit different populations, different segments of individuals. But this is a good segment of individuals who, by and large, are in good shape. They're doing pretty good. That you still have your job, you still have your health, you rested maybe this summer, you've taken it a little bit easier. And because of that, I think there might be a great danger that you might forget of God's provision. That you might forget, actually, of your dependency on him. That you might actually forget your need, and so you become complicit. And complacent, sorry, complacent. And so here's the test. How often and regular do you pray? Right? How vibrant is your prayer life right now? I found, personally, that most people, when, your life is, when life's going good, your prayer life is pretty basic. Why? Because when you're secure, when you're, not, when you're looking more to yourself than to Him, prayer becomes rote, becomes unneeded. And so the question, the test is, is your prayer life regular? Is it lively? Because potentially you may be in crisis right now, and this is ironically not a crisis from a lack of security, it's a crisis from too much security. That's the bitter irony, that we all want comfort, we all want pleasure, we just want a simple life but that tends to make us forget about him. It does. And so the woes of the, of the rich man in the, in the New Testament by Jesus are not because the rich man in and of themselves, the riches are the problem. No, no, in fact, I would make the argument that if you've been given a lot of resources, now you can give a lot. That they, actually, you can do a lot for the world with your resources. No, instead, the problem with the riches is that Jesus is saying that the more you have, the more potential we might look to those riches for our comfort than to him. And so, last point. What's the solution to David's, David's crisis? Right? David is in crisis. A crisis from plenty, not from want. And it says that's when he got shaken. So what's the answer? What's the solution? The answer is not giddiness. It's not happiness. David says it later on in his, in his text. He says it's joy. And I think this is what's so crazy that normally you think you're getting joy only by the absence of sorrow. That's how our culture interprets life. Joy can only joy and sorrow are mutually exclusive. Right? But as we've already noted, that we actually think that joy and sorrow are, are, are pulled apart. But the Bible says actually through joy. The joy doesn't come in the absence of sorrow. It actually can come in, not just in the presence of sorrow, but it can actually even come through the sorrow. That's what's so radical. That's what's so different that the world couldn't even conceive of. And so as a, for, as a Christian, this is distinct in Christianity, I think, because when you think become a Christian, you actually become both happier and sadder at the same time. Some people think, oh, you just get happier. That's not true. That some things give you more joy than they used to. There's more sweetness out there, but at the same time, there's more sadness. We mourn the loss. We mourn the brokenness even more. And so what, what is promised here and what happens to David is that sorrow, and by verse 11, that wailing is transformed into dancing. 
that I can sing praises, that weeping stays for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. In the psalm, joy follows sorrow. But I think we learn, personally, I think we learn that even more so in the New Testament, that sorrow actually can even produce joy. So you go back to verse 5 there. David is so sure that God's anger only lasts for a moment, like like a snap. But his favor will last for a lifetime. That means weeping might be here for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. That's what the text says. And we finally and ultimately and cosmically see that happen on the cross with Jesus because the only reason that his anger is only for a moment is because Jesus took that anger on the cross. God's anger doesn't just evaporate and turn to nothing. No, it's placed on Jesus. And David, I don't think he knew that. He couldn't have known that, but we do. That the great reversal that David experiences here was only possible because an even greater reversal happened with Jesus. That David's sin of self-confidence, our sin of overconfidence, was transferred to Jesus. So David didn't slip into the pit that's talked about in verse 9 because Jesus went into the pit for him, for us. And so you and I can be confident of being raised from the dead, that sorrow doesn't have the last word, and that joy actually does because Jesus was raised from the dead. So if you're religious here today, guess what? You have to strive for that joy. And therefore, sorrow is just punishment in most religious paradigms. If you're, not, if you're secular, if you're not religious at all, you have to run from sorrow because sorrow takes away joy. But if you're a Christian, that you can actually have joy through the sorrow. And this is actually something that I think is unique to Christianity. It's all through the New Testament. Go, but if you want to find a specific verse, go to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. There it says, For our slight momentary afflictions are achieving an eternal weight of glory, which far outweighs them all. That's in the New Testament. But if you, if you want to go in the Greek, it actually says even, even more strongly, it says our afflictions can actually produce our, fix, our afflictions can actually produce this glory. It doesn't just say uh, give to joy, like oil and water, they never mix. No, rather sorrows produce joy. They create joy, which sounds crazy. How's that possible? You can have joy in the midst of sorrow through the sorrow because God, not just as God out there, cosmic, distant God, but your God, my God, Sorrow is here, sin and death is here, disease is here, cancer is here, anxiety is here, loneliness is here. But if the resurrection is true, if the resurrection is true, and he was raised, so will you. So will you. That's what we're told that the God who loves you, that the God who accepts you and wants you, that's joy. See, remember Jesus' first miracle. I like to go back to this sometimes because Jesus' first miracle, when he came to earth, it was to turn water into wine. Right? To make a party an even better party. His first miracle, which is, by the way, in rabbinic culture, uh, your first miracle kind of sets the course, the trajectory of what you're about. What Jesus was saying in that first miracle, you know what I'm saying? What am I about? I'm about making a party a better party. 
In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm not here just to let you live. I'm here to make you thrive. I'm here to bring joy. I'm here to bring you back from the dead. That's what he's saying. And you won't just have joy. The sorrow will actually enhance the joy because when you see the loss, not just in your life, but in the, the loss out in the world, when you see that reversed and redeemed and fixed and made new, it'll actually make it better than what it had been before it was even broken in the first place. Now, that's powerful. And yet, it's important to see this from the other side too. Jesus wasn't always happy, was he? Was Jesus always smiling? No. Remember, Jesus in the Bible, he was constantly weeping. He was groaning. He was moved to anger and sadness. He was a man of sorrows, we're told. Because he knew that he was going to be rejected that he was going to be tortured, that he was going to be killed and ignored and broken. And so he had more sorrows than any other sorrows out there. But his sorrows didn't give way to just more sorrows. His sorrows gave way to joy. His sorrows produced joy. They literally produced the joy of the glory found in 2 Corinthians 4.17, that his sorrows were a way for us to be redeemed. And if that's true, then that power pattern is actually in you right now. If you knew that he lives and that you now live for him, don't waste your sorrows anymore. They're meant and they will eventually be turned to joy, right? They, cre- they create joy. And I think that's what David's trying to get at here. Is that he's now clothed in joy. As such, the heart can't be silent anymore. Do you see how that changes everything? Think of the greatest kiss Maybe that you've ever had or that you've ever wanted to have. Think of the greatest sunset. Think of the greatest meal. And those are just dim hints of what this coming joy will be. So to close, let me just give you a couple practical points that I think we could work on in the, in the meantime. First, if sorrow produces joy, as Pippert said earlier, we should be the chief repenters, the first ones to repent eager to repent and to admit our failings. Because if our failings are no longer the basis by which he accepts us or rejects us, then we can offer the same forgiveness to others. We can be willing to need forgiveness from others through our own repentance. In other words, to forgive others and to admit our own, that is the product of a changed heart. In fact, if you can't do that, if you can't admit, it means you can't be honest. If you can't be honest... You have to ask yourself the reason why you can't be honest. Probably because you don't feel fully safe. But if you have that safety that's secure because he's made you his joy, then you can be his, then you can make him your joy. You can admit those things. I really believe that if you're not a Christian, it's much harder for us to take a deep look internally of the selfishness and to admit those things because we know why? It's all based on our status with others. I have to look like I'm good. I have to show that I'm good. I'm going to be okay. I have to come off that way. But if you're a Christian, if your status is no longer achieved but received, and he lived and died for you, then you're free to look harder and deeper at your motivations. Why do you do that? Why do I keep doing that? Why, you know, why, why don't I do that? And then you can admit it and confess it. If joy comes through sorrow, then for a Christian... Admitting our failings, our wrongs, that sorrow can actually produce more joy. You want to know why? Because it's just one more thing that Jesus knew about us before we even knew about it. And he took it to the cross and he still died for us because he loved us, because we were his joy. 
Do you see how powerful that is? Repenting properly always creates more gratitude and more assurance and more love. And so I guess we should ask, are we a reconciling people? Are we a quick to repent and forgive people? Quick, that's a quick practical point. Secondly, and I think most people gloss over this in this text. It was profound. I, I never saw it before when I read it before. In the middle of this psalm, David shows us that a changed heart always witnesses. Look at verse 4 and 5. Being rescued and saved motivates David and implore, to implore others to sing the praises of the Lord. So he, he's telling others to sing praises. So in other words, his purpose and his calling is now moved to get others to share in this joy. He doesn't want people just to praise God merely because God has been gracious to him. He wants people to praise God because it's the nature of God to be gracious, period. And so I think there's a calling here to all Christians to witness. And there are so many ways to do that. We, can't, we don't have time to go into it. Yes, it's through words, like in this passage, but it's also through our actions. It's also through our prayers. Do we pray for others the way, that we, the, the way we could, the way that we should? Right? See, if we receive this grace right now, we want others to receive it and get it too. This city might not, might not be as nice as it used to be, but there is now more reasons than ever to be here. Not less. Not moving out. Christians always have moved in historically into the places that are falling apart and to lift them up. We go further in, not further out. And that means witnessing, not just in words, but in deeds and actions as well. Now is not the time to think about leaving the city if you have a job here. Now is the time to be moving into the city. If you're listening to this on the outside, move in. We need you. If you're already here, let's stay and let's build. Let's witness, right? If there are problems here, they aren't bigger than the problems of your sin, and God took care of that, so we get to take care of these. Last thing I'll say is this. If right now you're still falling apart, if you're still like, I'm not sure I know who I am, and I'm, I don't feel like dancing, some of you are like, I feel like I'm too tired to actually even witness, to stand up and go, what if we saw like David? What if we implored? What if we, you know, we don't get what we should be getting? That's, my, that's probably real and true. The good news of this text is somehow, in some way, ultimately your life will end in joy. Whether there's good reports or bad reports, whether my dad beats cancer or he doesn't beat cancer, whether you lose that job or you didn't lose that job, whether your marriage is in shambles because it's your fault or because it's somebody else's fault, there is a path that Jesus has chosen for you and you're on it right now and we don't know where it's going to go and we don't know what's going to go through, but you know what? That destination, what we're told, is ultimately joy. And the resurrection proves it. And David here didn't even know about this particular resurrection. And we do. If you died when you were 30, today that would seem like a tragedy. And so, um, I've been thinking a lot about my father who's like 69 and people dying in their 70s and 80s. You know, and I still think 69, 70 is too early. But if you look at it from the standpoint of, of, of eternity, if you back up, the joy is there for all of us. And whether you're living 30 or 70 years on this world, it's just a blip to, to the eternity that is coming. 
that pales in comparison to what is in store for you and for me, because in the end it's always joy. All the way down. Whenever you die, wherever you're going through, the path leads to Him. And that's joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is so hard to remember. It's hard for me. Father, I feel very raw with all the things that are going on. I'm sure I'm not alone. We long to meet in person. I'm so tired of doing this digitally. I'm sure everybody else is too. Give us perseverance. Help us to see this is just a moment. This will be over. It's just a little while longer. Help us not to give up. Help us to reach out and pray. If our prayer life is, is falling apart, maybe it's a test, and maybe it's showing us that we really haven't relied on you all along. Help us to do that. We, we know you're worth it, Father, in the person of Jesus. Thank you for doing what you've done. Help us to latch on even more. Weekends just for the night. Joy is coming in the morning, Father. Thank you. Praising to your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.